You're listening to the Kingdom Project Podcast. These are discussions on biblical theology and interpretation. The emphasis is on context and grace. The goal is to promote biblical literacy by displacing and debunking most modern interpretations. The challenge is to engage in healthy conversation that may stretch, but sharpen iron. This is The Kingdom Project, and I'm your host, Marcus Hall. Colossians chapter 1, so we're going to have to get some background here. We're going to go through the whole book, all right? We do this from time to time. I'll be honest with you, some trying to figure out a topic and things like that can get overwhelming at times, and Saturdays mornings can turn into Saturday afternoon and Saturday night until I finally get something. (laughs) I said, let's just go through a letter. Let's stick there for a while, see what happens, and uh, see what's going on. So we've you know, we've gone through Ephesians, and we've looked at Jude, and we'll do Colossians, and if it starts to drag out, we'll take breaks, and I'll come up with, you know, something else for a break. But I don't think it'll take very long. It's a short letter. Um, of course, I always say that, and then it turns into several weeks, so <laughs> we'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens, um, because uh, chapter 1... One through eight. Well, when you get to three, it's three through eight. It's pretty much one sentence. Um, but we're only going to get to like five. So today, but we'll we'll just see. We'll see what's going on. So we need the background. We need some history here. You know, if you have a study Bible, it's going to tell you some of these things. Um, the author and the date and the theme and the purpose and all that. So the background here. This is written by Paul. He's on house arrest in Rome when, when he writes this, okay? Um, the, for some reason, I found that they, it said it's widely considered to be written to the least important city to which any of Paul's epistles were addressed. I don't know why, but the topics would, are very important. I'm always drawn back to this book for some reason. Um, the Christology, the Doctrine... Is very it's very rich, you know, if you will. So um, it's not it's not believed um, to be known that Paul ever visited this city, but he did go to Ephesus. We know that. And when he was in Ephesus, he had met this man, um, Epaphras, and who got saved, who heard the gospel presentation of Paul. You can see this in in the book of Acts. He gets he comes to faith under Paul's teaching. Okay. He's from Colossae. So he, he goes there, back there. He takes the gospel with him because he's been saved um, and finds this church. Now, he goes back at some point to Paul and he's on house arrest. He's awaiting trial. He's receiving visitors. He's re- writing letters and doing all these things. And um, Epaphras goes and tells him he shares what's going on at the church in Colossae. All right. He starts to report 
what seems to be mostly bad news. And that's what we're going to see later uh, in this letter, that there were false teachers that are undermining the person and the preeminence of Christ. They're introducing man-made philosophies um, in place of sound doctrines um, that has been teached by the apostles as well. Okay, So they're being told to revere angels. And they're being taught by these false teachers that, that they must not eat certain foods um, or observe uh, certain festivals and all these things as well. So there's, you know, there's things like this that are very common. We, we know that there's churches that are very legalistic, right? And there's, they're handing out rules and judgments left and right. That's like this, what's being addressed here. We've all heard about the movement in some churches toward uh, kind of a, a new age self-help appeal as well, where the self is key to rising above it all, right? Nothing new. It's happening at this church as well, okay, in the first century. So this stuff is not new. <laughs> you're, you're rarely going to find a false teaching that can't be found in church history, okay? Um, so this letter is addressing all of this, all right? So Paul's task is to establish credibility first, all right, with this church because they've never seen him. So that's why he's going to be like, I'm an apostle, all right, but meanwhile, it's under it's under the influence of the, the false teachers who won't like what Paul has to say because he's going to be outing them out. OK, and he must contend with the serious issues that are weakening the church. OK, but he has to do so in a way that doesn't crush their spirit as well. OK, so that's an important thing as uh, it's gentleness and love that has to come across when you're. Coming, um, engaging with a group of people or a person that's under influence of things that are undermining the faith. You have to point these issues out, but you have to do it without crushing their spirit. So then finally, Paul will want to redirect them toward the basics of the faith, of the gospel, the essentials of all of that, so that the false teachers cannot regroup and then regain an audience. So that's that's background. Now, it's often referred to in theology as what he's addressing is the Colossian heresy. The, the issue is we don't exactly know what the Colossian heresy was. Um, most likely, it's one of two things or both. That it's early Gnosticism that's taking place. So Gnosticism is very like everything's, you know, everything spiritual, anything material is evil. So, not, you know, Gnostics, like your very blood, flesh and blood of your body is evil no matter what. And so there's all that, the early stages of that. Or, and the other thing is the Judaism. Judaism that's trying to always take over um, and say, yeah, okay, we accept that Gentiles can be part of Israel now, but you guys got to do this, this, and that, and all that type of stuff. We've talked about those things, okay, before. So... Um, that's your background. That's your short background. <laughs> I could probably do a whole hour on the background of it, but we won't. All right, so I'm just going to read one. Um, I'm going to read one through eight, even though we won't get through all of that today. So Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, 
Okay, so to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it always does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. All right, so it's a greeting, and it's got a lot of stuff in there. All right, so Paul, we know, central, central figure of the New Testament, all right? Do you know, like, does, it, does anybody know how many books are in the New Testament? Yeah, we, there's 66 books in the Bible, 27 in the New Testament, 13 books are authored by Paul, all right? The 13 books, they begin uh, with Romans, and they run through um, Philemon. Is that how you say it? I don't know. They're all credited in the New Testament to Paul, all right? So um, you see the impact that he had in the work that God was doing in, in all this, okay? So... Um, we first meet Paul in Acts. He's mentioned as Saul, right? Many think that after his conversion, then his name is changed. That's not the case. I've mentioned that before. Saul is Paul. Paul is Saul, okay? It was customary in that time that Jews often, they often had two names. They were given two names at birth, all right? Paul tells us that he was born a Roman citizen, so he would have uh, been given not only his Jewish name, but a Gentile name as well, all right? So uh, depending on his audience, depending where he's at, his name is different, all right? So Paul identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, right? That term apostle, um, it it's apostolos in Greek. It means a sent one, okay? But it, it came to be used in an official sense of one who was commissioned uh, not just by God, but as somebody else as a representative, okay? So this included special credentials and the responsibility to carry out orders of the one who sent him. So there's confusion with that, right? Today we have that word ambassador, all right, it gives the same type of meaning, right? Representative. So apostle is used as a, in a general sense in some passages in the New Testament or of a person who is sent uh, someplace by somebody else. All right. So if I'm the apostle Paul and hey, I'm in house arrest and all this, I need you to send this message. I'm going to send you. You're being sent as an apostle. Well, because you're under me, right? But you're not really an apostle in the true definition, all right? Because in the technical sense, the apostles were the 12 in Paul, okay? These men were selected by God to have a unique ministry in establishing the church, okay? It's, I'm pointing this out, and we've talked about it before, all right? But there are requirements that had to be filled to be an apostle. And there are people today who say they're an apostle, 
and they cannot fill their requirements. All right. <laughs> so there, these men here, they, they had to have seen Jesus during his ministry and his resurrection and seen him from, from after his res, the death and the resurrection. Okay. So there are requirements that had to be filled. These are found in Acts 1. We're not going to go over them, but I'm put, putting that out there. All right. You had to have seen Jesus during his ministry after his resurrection so that you could be eyewitnesses. Now, Paul is the last of the apostles, but in 1 Corinthians 15, he makes it clear that uh, he's recounting the post-resurrection appearances of Christ to those whom Christ appeared after his resurrection from the dead. Then Paul concludes that list by saying, then last of all, he was seen by me also. All right. He was born out of uh, due time, he says. He wasn't around for that, but last of all, Jesus appeared to him, okay? He's saying, I'm a unique case, all right? I am the last of the apostles, okay? He did appear to me, and that happened on the Damascus Road, right? When he's struck blind and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So Paul says in Colossians, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He is one who represents Jesus. He's in a unique position. It's important to establish his authority this way because he's going to deal with teachings that are contrary to what the gospel says. All right. So and this is later when we get to chapter three. So you understand that he's not just going to give an opinion among many opinions. That's not the case, all right? He's going to render God's verdict on the issues that are at hand because he is an apostle. He has that position, all right? And like I said, there's some in the church today who are teaching whether we're in the last days or that God is, uh, what's, what are they saying? What's the word? Uh, <laughs> brain brain to... Uh, Bringing it back. Seen Christ in Acts one. Yeah. Acts one, they give these out. Like they have to replace Judas, and they they lay out requirements to be an apostle. Yes, and then they draw lots, and then people question the requirements because they had to draw lots. But God was over it all, I believe. Right? So they were doing what they did. I mean, they did this stuff in the, the Old Testament as well. Um, also, priests had Uman and Termin, uh, I believe is how you say it as well. They were black and white stones that they carried. And it was much like a game of dice. It's very weird. So, uh, what I, from what I understand, it was, would have been known to the outside world as divination. But it wasn't because God was controlling the black and white stones. So when they needed a yes or a no on something, they would take these stones and roll them. And if it was black, it would be yes or no. I forget which one. But it was much like that. God was in control of these things. Um, so interesting little thing there. But yes, there are those required. They had to be at the time of his ministry on through the resurrection and uh, see this. So um, see Peter Ragnar and all that saying he's restoring. That's the word restoring apostles today. Okay. Well, he's not, it was done. Paul was the last of them. Um, they say apostles are present again. That's clearly against scripture, but it is a way Okay, what did I just say about Paul? He's trying to establish 
who he is, the authority he has to uh, combat things that are being taught. So today, people who want to say they're an apostle, it's a way to promote false authority within the church, okay? Because they receive new revelation, they say it's this way, you don't submit to that, you don't honor it, then you're going against them. If you disagree with them, you disagree with God, and so on. There's no new revelation that's given today, okay? Uh, Ephesians 2.20 says that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, right? We know this. So, um, and the whole, the whole response after being saved at Acts 2 is they dedicated themselves to the apostles' teachings. That's something we should do today. So with Paul, we see that there's this guy, Timothy, there. Timothy, our brother. Paul associates Timothy with himself in this greeting. All right. Um, so this should distinguish these men with clarity, okay? Timothy is a Christian brother, but Paul is an apostle of Jesus. So Paul's writing this letter. He wants Timothy to be joined uh, with him in greeting the church. And they're writing to the saints, it says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ. So the believers in the church are identified in two ways. We've gone over this one before. They are called saints, all right? doesn't matter. What you think of yourself, spiritually, you are a saint, all right? <laughs> I've, I've preached that sermon before, all right? They are called saints. They're called faithful brothers, okay? The word saint, there's, uh, in Greek, is a hard word to say, so I won't try to say it. But in three, there's three English words come from that basic words, saints, holy, and sanctify, okay? The most com common trans translation is holy, but saints is reserved for the plural form um, where when it's literally translated, it would be rendered by the word holies or holy ones. All right. So that it means to be set apart. That's what it means. That's the basic meaning of it. It's used in the Old Testament of things associated with the worship of God that were holy. Right. In the tabernacle, there were utensils that were holy. Because they were set apart from common use. They were, were only to be used in connection with the worship of God, right? So you have one thing that's only supposed to be used for that one purpose. That is set apart. It was a holy thing, right? <clears throat> the nation Israel, we, we know, was, was set apart, right? It was holy. It was set apart from the other nations to belong to God. So saints... Here, the word saint or saints, they are not super spiritual, special people, <laughs> right? Our culture seems to use that term in the wrong way, right? Uh, Mother Teresa, she was a saint, right? Okay, well, you're a saint. I don't, I'm not going to preach that sermon again today, but you are a saint. You've been set apart. You're in Christ. You're a Christian, all right? The term, um, all believers are saints. That's it. You know, I mean, the Catholic Church, got, you know, they got a lot of saints. Well, you know, they could put my name up on, the, on there too. Uh, they wouldn't like that though. They would argue with me. <laughs> right? But, but it's true. All believers are saints. All right? The term saint, though, it's never used to speak of our practice, but it's always used to speak of our position. All right? The word saint is to remind us of who we are. We are saints. And because of that, we are to live this life that's set apart unto God. 
And then Paul next, he identifies his readers then the faithful brothers in Christ, right? That faithful, um, it, it's believing. It's plural. Uh, this, the saints are saints because they are in Christ Jesus. That is our unique position. Only believers are in Christ, right? That is our union, our unique relationship that we have with Jesus. We are one with Christ. That is the basis of our acceptance that we are one. We shared with his death, his resurrection, and his life. All that he is, all that he has, we are and we have. So with these words, Paul describes the recipients in these terms that identify them spiritually and physically in relation to two spheres of life. Okay, They are identified spiritually in relation to their position in Jesus and also physically in relation to their location at Colossae, a reminder of the two spheres in which um, they live. And then he, he says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Now, I said verses three through eight, that's one extended sentence um, in the Greek. Sometimes in English, it's broken it down to smaller sentences. Mine's like that. So it's a little easier to read. Okay, but it's one extended giant sentence. Paul did this a lot. And it's just like, oh, it's forever. <laughs> There's all these commas and I don't like... Wait, which, which is the first one? What's going? I have to go all the way back and see what he's talking about. All right, but this is one extended sentence. It's built around the subject of thanksgiving. The first statement, then in verse 3, okay, the first statement in verse 3 governs everything else that will be said through verse 8. All right, so Paul, Paul's prayer life here. This is a great reminder, we, yeah, right? It's a good place to start. We pray, we pray a lot of times for ourselves, but we should be praying for one another. We've done that already. We've prayed. And I said, let's remember these things as we leave this, to remember these requests and pray for other people. All right? Uh, we should be praying for one another. And a good, uh, really a good place if you, if you, a lot of people aren't comfortable with praying for some reason, even if they're by themselves. They're like, I'm not sure if I can pray. It doesn't matter. You just talk like I'm talking right now. You can ramble. It doesn't matter. God's going to know your point. Okay? <laughs> it's okay. A good place to start is to think of those things that we have to be thankful for. If there's nothing else you know what to pray about, think of the things that you're thankful for that God has done for you or for the life and the other person. And thank, give him thanks for that. This is how Paul starts this. We always thank God when we pray for you, right? So that's a good place to start with thanksgiving. So Paul's, Paul's, um, Paul's praying there. And then he mentions the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to stress. He's stressing at the very beginning of this letter, something that's going to be unfolded later. All right. And it's the uniqueness of the relationship that Jesus had in his incarnation with the Father. He is the only one through whom we can know God and the only one in whom salvation is to be found. And that's it, right? Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, 
Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. We have another reason here for Thanksgiving. Paul has heard of their faith, their love, and their hope. So his first reason for Thanksgiving before God in prayer is noted as being that we heard of your faith. And there's like this trio of graces here. But faith is first. Why? Because faith always comes first, right? (laughs) It always comes first. Paul heard from Epaphras who brought the message to the Colossians, right? Many of them responded. They become saints because they have had faith. They're believers in Jesus. Nothing more is important than that starting point right there. Having faith in Jesus, right? There's the dynamic evidence of God's transforming power at work in a person's life. And it's faith. It comes through faith and faith alone. That's it. That's the most important. It always starts with faith, right? So for the Colossians to have believed, they first had to hear. And Epaphras was the messenger who brought them the message of the gospel. Faith indicates their initial trust in the person and the work of Jesus. And this formed the root um, that which brought them into this living relationship with Christ through the Holy Spirit. All right. So it's but it's also important to know if we're going to talk about faith, that their faith is defined as in Christ. Okay. A faith that resides in Christ would stress not only that past initial act of trusting in Jesus, but also the present focus of the faith of one who seeks to live by virtue of who and what Christ means to that believer. Right? So it, regardless of the issue is not just the presence of faith, but of a faith that resides in Christ. Okay? hope that makes sense. So Paul now, he says that these people have a love for the saints. And the word love here is agape. Most of us probably, we know agape. It's agape, agape, a lot. We hear that preached a lot. That word was taken by the New Testament writers. It's applied to the love of God, right? It's a It hints at a totally different source for the action which springs not from natural circumstances of the believer, but from a supernatural origin in God himself. All right, that agape type of love. All right, the key ingredient of it, it's the sacrificial character of it. Um, Love's not an emotion. We should know that. Uh, Love is not... A lot of times what we think, I know I've said it today, but I'm hoping, uh, although I don't watch football, it's Super Bowl night, so I need to get pizza and wings. I love pizza and wings, all right? But my love for pizza and wings may or may not be sacrificial type of love, all right? (laughs) Like, I love them, though, all right? My circle of trust is the crust of pizza, okay? (laughs) As you can tell. But... (laughs) But I want pizza and wings, you know, because it's Super Bowl. That's what you do, right? Well, saying I love pizza is not the same as God loving us. Not the same. Not the same at all, right? Love's not an emotion. 
It's really, it's not a love of response for something that you do to me or for me either. We often characterize love as an action. All right, so turn, turn to John chapter 13. Okay. And we have to look at this for a moment. Okay, because this, this is part of the section that, that it takes place on Jesus' last night on earth, right? And his crucifixion the next day. And so in prepping his disciples, Jesus tells them that, that he, he's, he's only going to be there a little, uh, a little longer. Then he's leaving and they can't go at that time. All right. So in 1334, he says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. All right? So, here's the thing. The commandment to love wasn't new. That's not a new commandment, right? All right? I, I mean, they're, they're instructed to love in the Old Testament. They were to love their neighbor as themselves, right? What's new here is that this commandment is is that love is placed in a new dimension. Christ says a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you. He says this on the brink of going to the cross and this love that he has for them is a love that knows no limits, no boundaries, right? So Jesus told the disciples on later on that same night, John 15, 13, or yeah, 15, 13, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends, right? <clears throat> and then he says, um, by, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. You have love for one another. So this becomes an identifying characteristic of one who is Christ's disciple. He loves other believers, Right? Jesus didn't say, by this, all will know that you have faith in me, which is interesting to know because we're always talking about, I just had a long section on faith, right? (laughs) He could have said that, but he doesn't, or he didn't. He said their love would distinguish them as his disciples, all right? So that's the side note. So Paul was thankful for the hope of the Colossians, all right? All this, the faith and the hope now. What is hope? That's another word. It's a lot like love, right? I don't know if we we know hope that much. Biblical definition of hope. Can anybody try to get, right? I know. Huh? Things to come. Things to come. Mm Mm-hmm. Hmm? Uh, there was a verse in, in there. Okay. Yeah. Well, the word the word hope has come to be a different meaning today. All right, than what's used in the in the New Testament. Now, <clears throat> the difference is okay. Today, it, it's a contingency. It's an expectancy that something will happen. But there's question or doubt, right? 
as to whether or not it will really happen or not, right? It's not like that in the Bible. Today, we usually say, well, I hope they'll show up or I hope you can, I, I, we can make it to the next payday, right? Indicating there's some uneasiness in that hope, right? There's uncertainty about the future, all right? But that's not the way the Bible uses the word hope, right? Hope indicates an absolute certainty about the future. An absolute certainty about the future. It's an attitude of an eager expectancy of confidence in God and his ability to do what he has promised, all right? Hope comes as the Holy Spirit enlightens believers to understand and trust the God of the Bible, right? So as we focus on, on the Lord through the scriptures, our faith will grow, right? Our faith will grow. Our faith in God gives us hope. And as our hope grows, it strengthens, uh, uh, it strengthens our faith. So hope strengthens faith and faith strengthens hope. It, they are interconnected, all right? So what is our hope today, right? <laughs> right? What is our hope today? Um, all of us who have placed our, our trust in Jesus, that's our hope in heaven, right? We have that. But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly await for it with perseverance. We don't see heaven. We don't see eternal life like that. But we have an absolute certainty about that future, right? I know that I am in the Father's hand. Nothing is going to snatch me out of that. I have an absolute certain hope in that. I know that. doesn't matter if times get bad or get tough or get... And I get anxiety, I worry too much, and I know. But I know Christ is my strength, he's my rock. I know I am in him. He is my hope, right? So remember what we said. Biblical hope is not just crossing our fingers. It's not finger crossing. It's a confident expectation of good things to come. Because God is good, right? 2 Corinthians uh, 5 1 it says for we know that if the if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed that we have a building from God a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens right so that's a there's another point in verse 5 of that that which is foundational that why why do the this group of people have such faith why do they have such love and it's because of the hope that's been laid up for them in heaven right the foundation of, of what he said is because of the hope, right? That's why it's important to recognize the faith that Paul mentioned in verse 4. It, it's not just an initial saving faith in Christ. It is present. It is ongoing, okay? They didn't have this hope in Christ in, until they believed in him initial, initially, right? They didn't have this hope in Christ until they believed in him initially, but now this hope that they have it, it becomes an ongoing source that feeds the faith. And now that faith grows and develops, right? So the gospel is a dynamic force, really. It continues its work, all right? They, they have this ongoing faith. They have an ongoing love. And because of the hope that's laid up for them in heaven, this is what drives this. All right, so they have a hope 
That controls and it shapes their lives. And that's what Paul's thankful for. That's all we're going to get to here. But it is a hope that's laid up in heaven. It's a treasure of, of, of God has prepared for those who have love, who love him, have faith in his son. It's a hope that centers in the person of Jesus Christ himself. And this hope serves as this anchor, all right, an anchor for not just their souls, but our souls. It brings uh, stability. Like I just said, it brings stability in all sorts of situations and circumstances, the times of turmoil and all that. And this hope comes from the gospel. It comes from Christ. And we are in it. Okay.